Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown, he's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. It's another round of Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. We've still got snow on the ground outside, but... You can always slip inside for a movie, thankfully. I'm Joel Hoover, and it's great to be indoors talking about the movies today here on the podcast. I'm Dave Brooks. Yeah, at least we didn't get two feet of snow like some of our neighbors to the south. No. But what a good time for a movie fest, right? You're not going outside to do anything. Might as well put on a movie. Unless you're going outside to go to the movies, like to the Bemidji Theater, which sponsors Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, and we are happy to have the Bemidji Theater on board as the sponsor of the podcast. It's a great place to go catch a movie. Keep in mind, they have their $5 Tuesdays as well. That is an awesome deal, Dave. I just took advantage of that here this past week, which I'll talk more about here in a moment, but that is a a fantastic deal that they do at the Bemidji Theater, and it's a great place to go catch what's current right now at the movies. Great staff, great comfortable spot, and boy, they have a good a good selection of them coming in. And with summer movies coming up, get ready, my friends. That's where I'll be spending some time. Absolutely, and we're going to talk about summer movies here in the near future on the coming podcast. Yep. Yeah, it's not coming up here today, but um, who knows, maybe whenever you're listening to this podcast, we've already got it up, and you can look forward to listening to that one next. But We've got another general topic we want to get into today, but first, a couple bibs and bobs, news and notes kinds of things. Um, Bibs and bobs, I never heard, is that an East Coast thing? That's one that my uncle would use, and I I always liked that one. I I thought that was a funny one. He would share bibs and bobs, he was a teacher, and he'd share bibs and bobs from the uh, tech and industry world a little bit. Uh, Actually, just general pop culture world sometimes i've never too. heard that one before. Yeah. I, I might i might use that one i like that one yeah so so anyway um a couple things to get into to start the show today first have you been to the movies lately dave uh the like i said when I, when you get a wee kid at the house you have to pick your battles so it's been eh, several weeks i was going to go see ready player one the other day and my normal movie partner missed out on it um, and then I got to go out of town for some other odds and ends, and I'm leaving town this week, so I'm going to darn well try to go see it. Right. Yeah, so th- that's one that I've been thinking about going to see. I, I would love to hear your review slash reaction to it, at least in brief form, next time we record, because I'm really curious about that one. Yeah, I really want to see it. I've heard good things about it, and just because of the nostalgia pop culture factor from the 80s and 90s, that's my era. Uh, yes. I, and it's Spielberg. Spielberg could you know, basically examine birch bark for two hours, and it would find a way to make it interesting. I saw one review that said it's like you're sitting next to the great director himself during the movie, and, and oh. he's probably pointing things out, you know, laughing along the way. You know, now it's in. $2 Tuesday, or $5 Tuesdays, I'm in. Excellent. Yeah. Please give me a review on that because I'd love to hear about it. Heck with that. I'll hit you up. Say, who? Two dollar, two five to five dollars. Sorry, Missy. Five dollar Tuesday. I'll hit you up. We're going. Sounds great. As long as I'm available. Yeah. But <laughs> I I went last week on Tuesday and I went to go see a quiet place. I've I, heard that's really I good. Took a bit of a leap. I don't typically go to the movies to see a movie like a quiet place, but I went and it was very very good it was it was excellent it's gotten great buzz it's gotten great reviews it's done excellent at the box office whatever you've heard about the movie it's it's very well true if if you've heard great reviews about it they are they're quite true it has been terrific and and it's um it's gotten it's done great business first week it went just over 50 million this week it got beaten by rampage but it was still at 32.6 million i mean it's doing great it's a it's a really really rock solid movie that is a clever movie for the thriller slash horror slash apocalyptic genre. It's something really innovative, and it's it's really unique the way it uses nonverbal communication and and the way sound is precious in the movie. I mean, you have the score that goes with it, but you also have such a lack of dialogue or conventional dialogue because there's a lot of sign language in it and 
Um, there's a deaf character in it as well. It's a very, very unique movie in a lot of ways and a very worthwhile movie to see because if you're looking for something that's new and different and creative, this fits, and it fits really, really well. Well, and you've got an actual real-life married couple as the married couple in the movie, Emily Blunt, John Krasinski, and uh, and I've heard, and I'm uh, I'm coming at this kind of completely uninformed, not completely uninformed. Is it the, the director or the writer of the movie that themselves is deaf? The director or the writer? I think I think somebody connected There's behind one, the, one of the kids in the, the character, in the movie. The character is, is yes. But I think that that stemmed from somebody. Well, John Krasinski is the director, and he's not deaf. Okay, so he's not deaf. Yeah, I knew that one. So it's it's one of the writers, then, I think. Somebody behind the scenes. Really? I believe from what I've read. And I may be wrong, but this is what I've read that they decided, you know what, we're going to, I want to do something like this. I want, so it must be the writer. Krasinski directed it and starred in it. So you're right. Um, I think it was one of the writers then. But it's, it's very interesting. I almost wonder at the beginning of this movie, they get the THX logo playing. Sound crafted by, and then there's not much sound. Right. <laughs> uh, there was nothing of that sort at the beginning of the movie, but okay. it, it would still be funny and somewhat ironic if there was. But yeah, John Krasinski did an outstanding job piecing this together. This was this was a pretty neat uh, a pretty a pretty neat movie. And I know he's he's getting more into the directorial side of things and, and taking some more opportunities to do that. And this was this was excellent. Yeah and, and I mean he and Emily Blunt are terrific together on screen and, and the kids who they had in the movie were 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 really great as well. And he's most known as a comedic actor. Jordan Peele, best known as a comedic actor. And they've got not only great reviews in their first directorial efforts, they're both thriller horror movies. Right. There's a pattern develop. I'm waiting for Jim Carrey to come out with something interesting like this and follow this mold. Uh, something interesting to look for down the road. Will there be more of this? Right, and I know he was he was in Thirteen Hours, I believe, um, yeah. about Benghazi. That's that's the one that comes to mind that he was in movie wise. But you also know him from the insurance commercials, at least yeah. as of late. It was like, what's going to happen post office for Jim Halpert? Well, now we know, and he's I mean he's done an outstanding job with this movie and with this particular project, putting it on screen. It, it was almost like an an indie film or something of that nature, and yet it was a a bigger film in terms of the interest in terms of the business as well that it's done yeah most definitely you know this is one where you get a lot of people that when they bust out of their comfort zone some people get pigeonholed and typecast into what they do and others find a way to break through in a way that people aren't suspecting and then they hit it and you look at say like a steve martin for example who over his long career he's done drama and done it well He's clearly a comedic actor and really exceeds at that, and he's done everything in between. I'd love to see Steve Martin in a horror role because I'll bet you he could pull it off. So when you really start to establish your credentials like Jordan Peele is now starting to stretch with and John Krasinski starting to stretch with, be fun to watch. Emily Blunt also great at comedy, great at action, great at drama. She can do it all. We are also less than two weeks away from the coming of Avengers Infinity War, yeah. and the buzz is just palpable. The advanced ticket sales have been through the roof as expected. I think it has outsold several recent Marvel movies combined as far as advanced ticket sales Avengers Infinity War has. This this looks like it is going to be one of the movie events of all time yeah. in terms of the kind of money that is going to be raked in for this movie and the attendance at the at the theater it is going to be an event in many regards and a lot of buzz and speculation regarding the movie itself there's there's a lot of unknown even some of the actors and actresses don't even know what's going to happen haven't read the full script because they haven't read the full script some of them haven't even met each other true funny enough it's. I mean there's so many people it's such who a ginormous in, cast it's huge yep the cast is huge not everybody has met each other for it, and yet this this is going to be quite the spectacle that we've got coming up here on April 27th. Everyone's wondering who's going to die in this movie. Will there be some of the Avengers who will die? What is the cost going to be? Whose stories are we going to see come to an end? Because this is the end of of phase of this this massive phase that that Marvel has gone through. This has been ten years in the making, as they've said, and. As much as I'm wondering what's going to come after, I'm wondering very much so how is this all going to end, and everybody is wondering. Well, they they are working on another Avengers movie. Uh, this was supposed to be a, originally it was going to be like a part one, part two. 
So it would lead you to believe this would end on a cliffhanger. They have since revised those plans exactly how they've been revised. Well, they haven't really fully said, so that kind of adds an element of anything could happen into this movie. Maybe it will end in some sort of a cliffhanger. Maybe it won't. But there will be another one coming up fairly soon after, not immediately, but soon enough. Um, let me ask you a hypothetical. So this movie really being positioned, like you said, is one of those big movie events of all time. If the reviews, and the, right now the early reviews haven't come in yet, but the, hypothetically, what if they're not good? Will this movie still make bank with this kind of hype and however many movies that the Marvel banner has put out over the last decade, really, that have led up to this, will it still make bank even if the reviews are stay away? Well, what do you mean by make bank? Be like a top ten movie all time kind I, of thing? I mean like be the number one movie of the year by a mile and a half and be on the top five, if not the top two, if not the number one list. Will this movie pull it in even if it fails? With all these balls they're juggling in the air. Right. How easy is it going to be to drop them and disappoint a rabid comic book fan base uh, if the last Jedi numbers were down over The Force Awakens, how about if the same is true with The Avengers? Will it still, if the reviews are not spectacular, will it hurt the box office? First of all, The Last Jedi is now out, and people yes. are going back watching it a second time around, and many are changing their minds on the movie. Yeah, Many are. I have seen some buzz about that on Twitter, and, and apparently there are quite a few people whose minds are changing. On that movie, it's so like a fine that, wine. You that, might not like it at first sip, but it grows on you. So that was that was something funny that I just wanted to drop in there since you brought it up. I think based on the the continual track record of success, critically and financially at the box office that Marvel has had, and the unwavering support of those who who like Marvel movies, and the the palpable buzz that has been generated surrounding this movie. I don't think there's any way this movie fails. Not that I can see any way to to generate a huge sum at the box office, even if the reviews are are not great, which I can't think of a Marvel movie that is that is not done well critically on a on a huge degree, not done well critically since they started this MCU that they've put together. I mean, there were some that that were only mediocre to okay. Like I think Iron Man two was only a mediocre yeah. movie. I think I think the Avengers: Age of Ultron was a very mediocre movie. I I, I thought that that was a a pretty poor effort that they put together with that movie. Um, and and I think even though it still got pretty good reviews, I think people watched it and went, "This isn't that great of a movie." But I I still think that with all the buzz and with all the excitement about the way that this brings this massive story to somewhat of a conclusion for many of these characters, I think this is going to be a slam dunk in terms of being the top movie of the year. Um, even with, even with I, I think, a growing sense of comic book fatigue and Marvel fatigue in particular because I'm looking at all the movies that I need to watch to feel like I'm going to be ready for this one. And I go, it's a long this is dizzying. List. I still have not seen Thor Ragnarok. I still have not seen I, – I go back to Ant-Man. I still haven't even seen Ant-Man. I still haven't seen Doctor Strange. I'm like, there. there is so much that I need to get caught up on here to feel like I'm going to be ready to see this movie. Yeah. And and it, it's it's to a dizzying degree when you look at all the movies that are, that are out there that I still haven't seen. Here's an interesting thing. Is this going to mark – I still haven't seen Spider-Man either. Yeah. <laughs> Is this going to mark the end of Marvel's dominance? Because it's been building to this. Once it's done, they're going to clearly start building up to another mountain. Are you going to be wanting to take this journey necessarily? And like you said, this long list of stuff to prepare for. Or might this be, oh, that was a great journey. We're done. No, we're going to go on another one. No, no, no. I took I took the big long journey. I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see if the fatigue is finally going to set in after this. I agree. Because it's going to be up to Marvel now to reinvent themselves to a certain degree. Guardians of the Galaxy somewhat did that for them. They went a more comedic route and and started getting more into that. Thor Ragnarok did that too. What do they do now? Do they completely change the tone of their movies? Do they um, do they try to explore some of the characters' stories who they've they've created more on an individual level? How do they want to approach that now? I mean, Marvel is such a juggernaut that I don't think there's going to be any slowing them down, at least not initially. But I do wonder if people are going to say, okay. We've come to the end of this long journey. Now it's time to cut ties and and start watching other movies. I don't know because 
comic book fans are comic book fans. They are loyal in that way. I mean, I don't doubt that, but I'm talking the general movie audience has clearly have come along for the ride, too. Um, and it's been a bit of an investment. I mean, if you've got, you're only so much. Oh, a bit of an investment? I'm not just oh, talking man. time. I'm talking money. If the kids are going to go see this movie, you're clearly going to take the kids to go see the movie. Yeah. But as a general audience goer, you know, there's a lot of movies that I would like to see. I will go see The Avengers. But I'd like to see A Quiet Place. I'd like to see Ready Player One, you know. Um, sometimes if I've only got so much of a budget to go see so many movies at a time, and there might be five Marvel movies this year alone, but I also want to see this and this and this. At what point do you say, I'm going to go see this, this, and this? Exactly. And wouldn't yeah. it be interesting, one last point, this is technically a summer movie. You know, it's coming out in late April. Wouldn't it be funny if the number one movie of the summer box office season comes out in April? Thus yes. proving my point that summer starts earlier and earlier and earlier. Just like Christmas starts earlier and earlier and earlier. By Labor Day weekend, the trees are up and Target and so forth. So, yeah. Be interesting if it happens. It's stretching out more and more. <laughs> yes, certainly. Any more bobs to bib? Not that I think. Not that I can think of. Do you have any? I just had the one I'd mentioned real quick. Uh, Motion Picture Association of America. They do a yearly end of the year study on basically how things have gone at the box office, and for the first time ever, they started looking at home media, and the results are what we probably would expect: that physical home media, DVDs, Blu-rays, 4K Ultra. Uh, are dropping off big time, and uh, so more people are going streaming routes. Whether it's you know Hulu or Netflix or you know HBO now or whatever, it's all streaming. And you and I had talked. Maybe we come from an old school enough. I and you both kind of have a similar opinion. Um, I like having my physical copies of stuff, my DVDs. I might because you and I were movie people. Some people doesn't matter. They'll go to the red box and hey, whatever they happen to have, that's fine. Whatever Netflix is showing, that's fine. I might want to watch something specifically. And if I can't find it streaming, then I still want to watch it. You know, I might hear a song in the course of the day that makes me think of a movie or it's from a movie. I hear Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone. And my gosh, I want to see Top Gun. Is Top Gun on Netflix? No. Oh, it is at my house because I've got a physical DVD copy of it or I can right. loan it to somebody. Did you see this movie? What a novel concept, right? I know. It's nice. And so I've got a pretty good collection. And at some point... Streaming of every movie and every show that ever came around may be available at some point down the road, but until then, I don't see myself getting rid of my physical media collection. Yes, I, which I, I think is it's not surprising, but at the same time, there's something about owning the physical movie that's great. I love loaning it to people. I love having my collection that people can sift through and, and, and pick out a movie from. But that's the way we're going, isn't it? You know, it, it just it, it it's part of the trends that we talk about all the time on here. Of that, this is just the latest trend in terms of this is where we're going as far as advancements and as far as consumer habits. It's just the way it's going. I you know one of the things I miss when they used to be video stores was going and looking at the box art, um, and in particular they they were pretty good box art across the genre. But when I was a kid in the eighties, for some reason the horror movie section. The box art for that was almost its own terror. You know, some of them were just artwork, and they really got it across what the movie was about and could a little chill down your spine before you'd even open the, you know, put the movie in. Right. They, you know, now you go down the Netflix queue, and it's just not like that. You know, it's 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 a, the size of a postage stamp for one. I need to I need to get up off the couch and walk closer to the TV to see it. And it's not because my eyes are going; it's because the text is so. You know, it's just it's just not the same experience. So part of that experience was shopping for what you wanted to see, selecting it, and then getting to watch it. But they've yeah. taken part of that out of it. So they've got little mini movie trailers attached, but it's not the same. So streaming, that's awesome. It's the wave of the future, and it's arriving. But I would argue that I don't think it has fully arrived yet. Not to what it could. Right. That's something to keep an eye on. That might even be something we approach again at a at a later time in a later episode. But yeah. we've had we've had a very lengthy open here and preamble here. So right. thanks for sticking with us. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Again, check out those five dollar movie Tuesdays. That it's a great time to get to go. 
Anytime is a great opportunity to get to go see a theater, to go see a movie at the Bemidji Theater. Great theater You said theater it right, to, to go see a theater. I've been to the theater. It's beautiful to see. Yes, it is beautiful to see from the outside. Okay, uh, we wanted to talk sound today with, with the movies, and more specifically, sound and soundtracks. Um, and not soundtracks as well as scores for movies. Just the, the general essence of sound and how it's, it's attached and music attached to movies. Specifically the music, yeah. Yeah, more specifically the music because it's, it's fascinating how music has changed when it comes to its use within, within movies because it, it's developed in such a, a pronounced way, I want to say, from when movies first came onto the screen to, to now. You know, when movies began, they were, they were silent films that had no that had nothing except for the the script on on screen that you would see oftentimes um, in the movie theater there'd be a guy physically in the theater playing the piano right along with it so there was nothing on the film but they would usually accompany it with something live or piano if they, mostly or if they had a sound track that would go with it or a score that would go with it that would be it in terms of sound and you wouldn't you wouldn't get any words or any speaking or anything until the talkies came along yeah. in the late 20s going into the 30s when when finally you could hear what they were saying on screen but so music was relied on in such an important way then but then then it developed over time then it was more of a, a background piece kind of thing uh, that would be incorporated in and it's fascinating watching back movies from the 30s and 40s because you get you got those orchestral accompaniments that come and and they would have often those orchestras in in person there in the theater and Depending on the movie, sometimes you still get that today, and and you have to go to certain showings and certain places special in order to events, see that. Yeah. yeah, special premieres, yeah. and everything to be able to see that. I'd love to go to see something like that. That'd be cool. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great? I I've always thought about that. It'd be so cool to go to a movie premiere and be able to hear the orchestra accompaniment go with the movie, especially when it's it's a classic orchestra that that is the sound and and the score for the movie or a classic movie that everyone knows the score to like when ET was re-released like 10 years ago they had a couple of premieres in LA where the show the showing was just the you know sound for the movie but no music John Williams was in the theater personally conducting the orchestra to that you know the, the score you know and love and grew up with live in the theater wouldn't that be just a kick in the butt yeah you know, and if and put a little context to this, you think, well, I don't get music in the movies. You know, eh, it's nice, but think of it this way. Some of the most iconic scores ever, and speaking of John Williams, we'll do Jaws, for example. They did, uh, the movie came out in 1975. It came out in the summer of 75, uh, about a month before it was released wide. They had, a, they had a preview screening, and sometimes the movie's not quite done yet. And so in this case, the score wasn't done yet. So they showed the movie with no music at all, and it just it, it bombed. It did not do well. It was not well-received. And then the movie music was done. It was put in and edited together, and then they showed it, and it was a completely different reaction. Because if you know the story, the shark didn't work well. They used the music for the shark in a lot of ways, and so in scenes where the shark was ideally going to be there and wasn't, they had to fill in for it, the music made it happen. The music was almost its own character. Because what is that proof of? It's proof of music's ability to add to whatever kind of tone you are trying to set with the movie. It's the frosting and, on the cake. Right. It's for Jaws and I wouldn't even just say it's frosting, Dave. It's it's part of the essence of what makes this really what it is. So yeah, I, guess, I guess in its own way, it's it is like frosting. It's, I thought you were like it's a special topping. No, it's, like, it's the yeast in the bread. It rises. Otherwise it's just a yep. big concrete loaf of wheat. You know, it's just not to get not to get stuck on the analogy for no. too long, but any but anyway, you're right. It it adds such an important element to it as far as making this what it is. With Jaws, like you said, that adds that dramatic element to it. Any horror movie that you watch, the soundtrack and, and the score, more specifically, there's a big difference between those two. The score is the the music that accompanies the scenes that go with it. The, the orchestral stuff, right? The soundtrack is often is often um, external music that goes with it, whether it's um, pop music. Sung, sung music, pop music, yeah, country music, whatever it might be. It's it's mainstream music that accompanies the movie along with it. And we've seen more and more of that over the last several decades. We'll get into that here in a little bit. But 
score complements a movie in such an important way for adding tone and for adding what you are trying to convey with the movie. It's it's essential to have a really elite score to go with your movie if you want to do well because that adds to your tone. It adds to the emotional output you're trying to get. If it's a horror movie, you're trying to create that sense of fear and fright. If it's an emotional drama, you need to get emotional music that is going to accompany it and go along. It's it's essential. Yeah, and there are times where you've seen movies where clearly they had to cut the budget somewhere, so they cut it on soundtrack, and you could tell. You get somebody in a room with a synthesizer, and it just it doesn't quite work. And yet other times, depending on what the movie is, it's a very minimalistic score, but it works. Right. And, you know, part of that evolution, you know, the movie music had really, really swelled up, and it used to be very grandiose back in the golden age of Hollywood, and then it kind of started to drop back a little bit. You know, the 60s and the 70s in particular, very very much minimalistic. Well, one other thing, too, about the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and this is something interesting that even as I scan the best original score winners for the Academy Award, they used to have a, a particular section for scoring of a musical picture. They would have separate ones for a dramatic or comedy, but they would have a musical one in particular. With how frequent musicals were made, it's not a surprise that they had that because you'd either get scores that would be this this complimentary thing that would go along with um, with the movies of that day once they started becoming talkies and once they, they started adding dialogue in. But you had more and more musicals then that came along too, and those they became a category in and of themselves because musicals were so frequent on screen. And, you know, it's like a passing genre, though, in a way. Musicals will never go away. But they're not on the big screen like they used to be. And every time they try to bring one back, uh, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, is was Annie, the remake of Annie, was that the most recent musical that I can think of, I think? Uh, Daddy Warbucks and Little Orphan Annie. I think that was the last, no, The Greatest Showman, that was a musical. Yes, it was. But, I mean, they get received to a point, but they're not dominating like they were back in that point. But you go back to that era, West Side Story, The Sound of Music, They just don't, A, make movies like that anymore, and B, they're not received like those were when they do come out. Right. They they got well-received. The Greatest Showman got great reviews, and it did decent at the box office, but it wasn't a juggernaut. It certainly wasn't up for, I don't think it was up for Best Picture, but Sound of Music was. So clearly the the landscape has changed, and at least the, the appetite for it has changed. But for movie music... Not so much. That's interesting you brought up that they had the subcategory for the movie movie musicals. I had yeah, I had never realized that. So it was it was really fascinating to come across that and to see that. But yeah, at the golden age of, of Hollywood, it was interesting how scores became more and more bombastic with, with how they were. And they, they became these big orchestral pieces and there would be a lot of people who would who would be a part of making that happen. But you look at some of the, the great you know the the great um, composers of that day, and there there are a couple of names that stand out. Elmer Bernstein was oh, one yeah. in particular that that really stood out. Henry Mancini, very very frequent one that you would see. Actually, you know, won for won the Academy Award for Breakfast at Tiffany's when when that came along. John the, Barry, John Barry name. in particular, when when James Bond came along, there came John Barry, and boy did he become a a mainstay with those movies, especially the first early iterations of those movies, which they, the James Bond movies are interesting because we're, we're getting into the soundtrack piece here at some point. The James Bond movies were some of the first movies to incorporate a popular popular singer doing a piece in particular. And of course, you know what I'm talking about? Those opens that they would do that those were some of the first movies that started to do that with some frequency and consistency where they would get somebody singing a special opening song or making a special song for that um that that they that they would make kind of a a trendsetter in that way i wouldn't say that they were the first ones to do it in particular but they were among the first. They were among the first to integrate it well, you know, Shirley Bassey had done Goldfinger, which is the third Bond movie. And uh, this is a song that you could hear on the radio, so it's helping promote the movie. Became a hit in and of itself, uh, and then you'd go see it with the movie. It's it's synonymous, and so you can go through even our era. You hear Huey Lewis in the news, you know, The Power of Love, what do you think about? You think about Back to the Future. You think about uh, Justin Timberlake. You think about the movie Trolls. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's become synonymous in its own way so that it helps promote the music, helps promote the movie, helps promote the song. 
promotes all of it. It's a good circle. And when it's done right. Absolutely. Yeah. As you go along through through the 60s, you start seeing some pretty big names, even in current film yeah. scores or, or film scores that have become more frequent over the past several decades really start to come up. The first time, I believe this was the first time, first time Jerry Goldsmith was yeah. nominated for an Oscar was 1962. I mean, what a mainstay he was with with putting together music and, and doing that. Lost that year. He had he had the music to Freud. Lost to one of my all-time favorite movie scores, Maurice Jarre's score for Lawrence of Arabia, which yeah. was such an innovative musical score to go with the the movie itself and, and went so many different directions with it. And there's an example of a score that that suits the tone of the movie where it was it was a score that at times was grand and and arousing of, of great emotion and yet at other times it was very almost ironic a little bit because it was ironic of, of the um the very the the very inconsistent character that Lawrence was and as portrayed in the movie and it's it's fascinating when you listen to the music that way of of how it also takes in the irony of of what a you know a two sided kind of character he was so it, it's it's neat when you listen to some of these to some of these classic mo- uh, when you watch these classic movies and listen to the classic film score that goes with them it's it's neat how even though yes it was frequently an orchestra. It was used differently every time, and, and it's cool how you pick it up when you listen to some of these movies, or maybe in other cases where you go, that sounds really similar to that movie, or, or this this just sounds like kind of the same thing, using the trumpets, you you know, getting it something grandiose. It's cool to hear how, how they would vary it sometimes. Yeah, and a lot of the composers, they had their... They had their stamp on their whatever they did. They had their sound. They had their thing. But as much as they also had a sound that you were synonymous with them, they were also chameleon-esque. You know, Jerry Goldsmith was all he was known as in a lot of circles the guy who knows how to scare you. He could really do some. I mean, he did the Omen in the early seventies. And whether you're watching the movie or just listening to the soundtrack to it, it's freaky. It will scare you out. It's got demonic chants and Gregorian or whatever the language was. It's freak or Latin. Um, this, and not only that, he could do very sweet, very emotional and everything in between. He was versatile. And as the times changed. And then he started doing Star Trek movies and he goes, he goes that direction too. As the times changed, he would change his, his tone to go with the movies. When the seventies got minimalistic in some regards, he got as minimalistic as Goldsmith could get, got, but he could certainly go about as big as anybody. He really could. Yeah. Just have to listen to the uh, score for Star Trek The Motion Picture, yeah. which ended up becoming Star Trek The Next Generation's theme, or, or a variation of it became yeah. became that theme. Yeah, These, I mean, you could. I mean, if we and if we were allowed the rights to air some of the music behind us on the soundtrack on the podcast, we would. But for legal reasons, we can't. Yeah. So, but opening up YouTube and a side tab and listening to that underneath. Would be a nice option. Absolutely, one of my favorite Goldsmith um, scores is the one he did for for Hoosiers. I yeah. love the one he did for Hoosiers. It just it's very eighties. It, it gets into that more of that techno sound that you, that you got in the eighties that that synthesizer kind of sound, but it works just masterfully with with the the scenes that they have in that movie, especially especially some of the montage scenes, some of the music that goes with it. It just it just makes you smile because it, it reminds you of that love for high school sports and yeah. and enjoying the the competition of high school sports and it, oh man, there will be times where I'm driving to well I'm on the bus to a road game of some sort during during the sports season especially for basketball and I'll put that music on on my headphones and I'm just like. This this is perfect. It's the music of of high school hoops. It seems like it's probably the least Jerry Goldsmith Jerry Goldsmith score that he ever did, um, because it's so eighties. It's yeah. so it's so eighties, but it's also not grandiose. It's all it's got its moments where it is, but it's 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 very much a product of its time. But you know, you, every now and again, you'll get something very unusual from a composer. John Williams has a sound about him. He's on just about every Spielberg movie. Not every one of them, but darn near. But he did the soundtrack to JFK, which is nothing like a John Williams score has ever sounded like before or since. Yeah. It's extremely different and very, very good. Another soundtrack I really like from going back to like the 50s and 60s, the, the soundtrack, it, it's a it's one of those really simple ones. Lalo Schifrin did the soundtrack for Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. And the theme for that movie is, is great. It's such a simple different, little piece good. and yeah. very different, but it... 
it's great. It it just suits it suits the tone of the movie that against the man kind of kind of style and and the the sound it's just this this simple sad sound but it works really great for the for the movie and what they're trying to go for boy i'll tell you when you could really get something you know what a, what a good soundtrack really does is it puts you into the movie it's what's the final grasp what, what makes a good movie really is what pulls you into the movie you almost forget that you're sitting in your living room or in the theater you are in the movie the last grasp that gets you and makes that difference is a soundtrack. Yeah. And if you're almost there and there's no music and then the music goes and it pulls you in the rest of the way, you're there. Whether it's, you know, Steve McQueen going to jump the wire fence and the great escape, you're there. You know, that mu- that music makes it happen. Whether you are terrified of something under the water that you can't see, that's John Williams. That's the score. Or you're into the mob world of The Godfather. And yeah. And you've got that, that perfect music that goes along with it. Yeah. It, it, it works, whatever it might be. It, you got it. Yep, it takes you It takes you into the world of the movie, and it, it, if it works, it suits the tone extremely well. And it, it's really hard to describe how movies do that, but the, the, the best ones seem to know how to be able to, to get it to suit the, the style and tone that they are looking for. And that's where you know you've got a great movie, is if you can get your score matched up with your theme. And and you make it unique and this in is, that way. This is one you and I talked about. I think at the end of the last podcast, we started already having a chit chat about the soundtrack debate. Do you want me to take the corner into this, or am I jumping too early for you? Uh, no, I know we're progressing kind of through the, the decades, but so one of the current composers of the day, who I'm, I'm a fan of, Hans Zimmer. He's been around for a long while. He's got a fairly versatile track record as to what his sound is, but his sound is. Uh, it almost sounds like a really good synthesizer version of an orchestra. It doesn't sound like an actual live orchestra like others do. And I'm not knocking it. It's just this sound. But John, but he has come into his own where uh, I, I can't put a great emphasis on this, but Hans Zimmer's come up with the musical widget. He's come up, whatever the widget means to you, that's his product, whatever it is. And his widget is what his widget is. And so he came up with a really interesting sound for the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight Batman trilogy. It's dark. It's brooding. It's tempo. It's, you know, I mean, what is the theme to Batman? Dun. Pretty much. Dun. Pretty much. Dun. 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 That's that's, kind of it, you know. But I mean, what was John Williams' score? What was the theme for Superman? The music itself almost speaks the words superman so they brought hans zimmer in to do the man of steel and he also did the justice league and um it's, it, the tone was dark the tone was very much like batman batman as a character is dark and brooding i will add darker tinted especially with with man of steel darker oh, yeah. tinted and yet it, it was charcoal still- it was still this rousing score in its own way, but it was darker tinted. It, yeah. But it got to that. The, the end of the score, the end of the movie is where you finally really get the first Superman you know, theme. You kind of hear hints of it through the rest, but it's not until like the last scene of the movie where Clark Kent is showing up to the Daily Planet, and then you get, as the credits roll, the first time you really get to hear the Superman. Well, that's great for the credits. You walk out and your pulse is going like, yeah. The movie's over. You know, you did. You had all those opportunities to hear stuff. It was very alien esque, and that's cool because he is an alien, and all the you know the Kryptonians were alien. So I get that. But there were a great moments for the Superman character in the movie that were not accompanied by anything uplifting and optimistic. And that's what you were saying. That's the tone and the theme of the movie. It's supposed to Superman is an uplifting character, and they, they dropped the ball as far as making the movie that and making the character that for that movie, and they also followed it up and doubled down with the score. The score is brooding and dark. The character was brooding and dark for a character that is the opposite of that, and so that's a partial reason why maybe the DC Universe is struggling. They've got a great widget from Hans Zimmer, and I'll give him all the credit in the world, but for that movie... It did not work, in my opinion. That's why tone is so important. And you set that tone with the music that you have and the particular sound yeah. that you go for. It sets it sets a, such a huge, huge marker for what you are going to be doing with the movie. And I think there's a lot about what Hans Zimmer does that, that does work, or there there are scores. Oh, absolutely. Been, I mean, look at The Lion King and what he did oh, with, yeah. with the score there. It's tremendous. And it 
he went such a different route with Dunkirk here just over this summer, yeah. over the summer. It was almost it was not some, even a score. It not not a very typical score. It 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 just added to the it, it was it was more of a hodgepodge of sound was what it was, but it added to the the panic that that you get out of that movie and the panic that goes on within that movie. So it worked and, and really the moments was... of panic are offset then by those those incredible moments like Variation 15, which, I mean, we talked yeah. a little bit about that in, in the last podcast about the, you get those those offsetting moments where, where you know, the boats are coming in and suddenly you you get this this different sound that is, it, it just, it, there's there's a crescendo of emotion of relief that comes with it as well and it's uplifting too. What would be the primary instrument that he used as a, as a sound or instrument for that score, believe it or not, a clock. Yeah, yeah, it's tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, and it's picking up its pace as the movie goes. Right, putting in that that sense of urgency, and that's you know for Dunkirk it works, for Batman it works, you know, in whatever movie when the bomb is ticking down and the hero's trying to break up and stop before the thing goes off, that works. For Superman, doesn't work, you know. And, and I don't want to pick on Hans Zimmer. I think he's a fantastic composer, but even and this this might rile you up a little bit. Uh, Interstellar. It was largely a church organ, was what he was using, and it was great and it was mysterious, and it, I think it kind of worked really. But yeah. at the same time, it kind of didn't work. It was kind of in the middle for me. It was. I think there was issues with the sound of the movie in general, which some people have complained about. And, and maybe it was the theater I was in. I was not in Bemidji when I saw it the first time, so uh, Bemidji Theater gets a pass. I was out down in the Twin Cities. Maybe they had a blown speaker. I don't know, but it was hard to hear the people talking over the other sounds and the music. It Got was it. very difficult to hear. And the church organ yeah. was weird and mysterious, but for the for the tone of what the movie was, it kind of worked. It's amazing that John Williams has come up as much as he has. He's one of the Talking best. about this, because when you look at the movies that he's done, it is, it is remarkable, remarkable, when you look at the imprint that he has had on movie scores. Before you even say anything else, you could throw a rock in any direction and hit anybody that I guarantee you knows when that maybe he doesn't know it's John Williams or not, but I guarantee you knows a sound, a piece of music by John Williams. Guaranteed. I, I don't know how he does it because I I look at movies and it and I look at music and it's hard enough to think how are they going to come up with new ideas yeah. these days. And John Williams comes up with a new soundtrack for so many different types of films and they it gets him nominated so many times for Oscars and it, it's remarkable remarkable seeing the work that that he has done over the course of his career give me a few give me give me some of the obscure ones first the obscure ones start with the ones that people don't know about necessarily which will be tough because most of them are spielberg movies but not all of them how do i even go through all of his film compositions i know it's i mean he goes way back what was the first one he did was it sugarland express no he went he went further back than that didn't he he? went all the way even back in the 50s yeah his feature film debut was daddy-o Back in 1958, was That's the first right. one he did. That's right. But like I said, obscure. You know, I I I remember reading that. I've never seen the movie. Never heard the score to it. I never knew he did the score for How to Steal a Million. Yeah, it's really interesting. See? I that's that's a movie that I've seen, and it's wow. I mean, he was one of those realize. guys that he was around, and he, you know, it's every, it's like every so often you go see a movie from say 10 years ago, and you'll see somebody yeah. in the background that you're like. That guy became a big star later, but he's an extra in this movie. Do you know what his first Oscar win was for? Now, was that Sugarland Express? No, it wasn't. Which one was it? Fiddler on the Roof. That's right. How about with, that? With Topol, yeah. Fiddler on the Roof. That's yep. right. Early he, seven. He did the Poseidon Adventure then. Of course, he, he did Jaws, which was a, a massive winner. I, I think Jaws really... Really was the the big moment of okay John Williams is is yeah. a heavy hitter and then after that came Star Wars and then it was like that's it this guy is a stone cold legend even more so than that he hitched his wagon it consciously or unconsciously to, to Steven Spielberg and Spielberg for a long while and well, that could... same year Close Encounters of yeah. the Third Kind he was nominated for both of those movies. Yeah. For the Oscars. He got in with Spielberg when the time, and they just got a great collaboration together. And so, for you can still argue Spielberg is as, as influential now as he ever has been. But I would say the late 70s and through the 80s and the early 90s was probably the prime for Spielberg. Uh, arguably, that's a debate question, definitely. But, you know, for most of those, John Williams was with him. He hitched his wagon aboard for this. And this is pre-Star Wars. 
Um, That's much like the Christopher Nolan Hans Zimmer collaboration yeah, in a lot of ways. But but I mean, yeah, Spielberg. He knew what he was doing with his movies, and he knew that Williams was going to know what he was doing with his soundtracks. As one rose, the other rose with him, and they I mean, they both became so synonymous. And it was a perfect collaboration. Yep, 1993, they do Jurassic Park and yeah. Schindler's List together. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's crazy. In the same year, both of those movies are released. and I mean, that's it's remarkable. It's, and two incredible movies. I think you can count on one hand the amount of movies that Spielberg has done that were scored by somebody not John Williams. And I think, uh, double check for me, I think The Post was one of them. No, uh, Ready Player One. He was uh, John Williams was doing Star Wars, so he got Alan Silvestri who's also well-known for Back to the Future and some others um, who's worked with Spielberg before. By the way, did you know that he is doing the sound, the uh, the music, the score for Star Wars Episode Nine, but he will retire from composing for music for Star Wars after that one. I've that, heard that. That is going to be his last one. I've heard that. And I mean, how old is he now? He's got to be 80-something. He's, he's 86. 86. You know, realistically, realistically, I mean, I don't need to think I need to say anything beyond that. Um, he will be a great loss, A, when he retires, and B, when he passes on. But his legacy is going to live on forever. Find me a kid that isn't got some Star Wars plastic toy in the backyard. That's all John Williams. Right. Every time you're in the bathtub with a kid, you're trying to freak him out. Your kid doesn't even know what that means. Right. But he knows John Williams. That's that's just how impactful he's been. And then and then you look at, at others who have you know, who have had that same kind of influence. James Horner, who who passed just a couple oh, of years good. ago. Uh, some some really terrific scores that that he put together. Um, I mean Titanic is is obviously one that that really stands out in, in particular, but he's he's another who in his time had a, a remarkable run in terms of of the music that he put together. And and even and some of people what... who were influenced in many ways by, by the music of oh, yeah. Howard Shore and all the work that he did with the Lord of the Rings movies and, and others that he's put together. You know, one thing about Horner, and I'm a big fan of James Horner. He's got a sound that's fantastic. But he, you could clearly pick up some influences as to what he did. Uh, oh, who was that Russian composer? Oh, I know his name and I can't say it. Uh, Battle in the Snow is one he did. Well, Jim, I'm not going to try to dig around and try to figure it up. Um, but Horner would take almost verbatim cues from other composers that had come way before and would incorporate them differently. And he would even take some of his own score and redo it almost verbatim in later movies. Yeah. He was well known for anytime the bad guy would show up, he had a five note cue da 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 that would show up. In about every movie he ever did that has a bad guy in it. And yet he could still find a way to make it different. And he found a way to make it different. But there are occasions where it's almost verbatim. He takes a musical cue, for example, from the movie um, uh, Aliens and reuses it verbatim in Patriot Games. He took a cue from Star Trek II and reused it verbatim in Cocoon. So he was a recycler, which is not the bad thing. It worked. But if you follow music scores, you're almost kind of hearing like a stand-up comedian do the same routine he did on this comedy album on a later comedy album, which is fine. It's still brilliant, but he was known to do that. But that being said, boy, was he a voice. He was really a voice. James Newton Howard, by the way, another great one who's who's come along. As we get toward the back end of this here, I do want to wrap up with how things have changed over with sound in the music of movies over the years and one of the main things gotta, gotta bring up one more guy sure gotta bring up thomas newman yes and absolutely. The, whole, the whole newman yep. clan really but thomas in particular he stands out for me he's one of my all-time favorites and you want to talk about experimental yet works this guy can really do an interesting sound that you wouldn't expect you know just watch skyfall watch skyfall he's really come in with that i mean but even if you go back to the the 90s i mean listen to the opening credits for scent of a woman it almost sounds like people falling down in the orchestra pit but it works i mean what what instrument yep. was that i and it sounds like a guy falling into the orchestra pit but it works music in the movies has changed a lot and and there are two main ways that i've seen this number one is with soundtracks because more and more especially beginning in the 80s and in particular now in the modern day, we are seeing soundtracks become so common where music is intertwined with pop culture in a lot of ways. And you can use current music 
in movies and and use it to to great effect. I mean, look at Baby Driver. What an innovative soundtrack that was, blending together all that music and putting it to the rhythm of the movie. It was it was a fabulous job that they did. I mean, that's that is that that's Edgar Wright yeah. showing off essentially, but it's it, but it made it such an, a unique movie that way. That blend of soundtrack and and movie and soundtracks. It's that collection of music coming together into a movie and it's it's cool how movies sometimes sometimes use it the wrong way the use of soundtrack where it's just oh I'm I'm going to get music from this artist put into this movie just because um like Transformers they would have a Linkin Park song at the end of their movies at, at the end just because but occasionally you do get those ones that make it work really well. And Baby Driver is a really great modern example of how that looks and sounds. Well, look at, you know, The Lion King. You got Elton John teamed up with Tim Rice to do, you know, Rice did the lyrics, Elton John did the music. And it was spectacular. Not only Tarzan the, with Phil Collins. Tarzan, yeah, to a lesser extent. But, I mean, Lion King won an Oscar. You know, Elton John yeah. won an Oscar for that. That stuff, you know, Eminem won an Oscar for 8 Mile. 8 Mile, that's um, right. It works. You know, when you do it right, it works. And if you don't do it right, then it's just hodgepodge, you know. And there's a lot of movies that have got some great artists, but they're not really part of the music other than the end credits. But they, you know, I mean, say what you want about Prince. I love Prince, but did it really work for the Batman movie? I mean, how often do you listen to Bat Dance now? You know, even in 1989, it was a novelty for about 15 minutes, and then you'd heard enough of it because it's a long song for one. And a lot of those songs didn't really gel with the rest of the character. It was like it was a, it's a melting pot, is what those Tim Burton Batman movies were. So nothing against yeah. Prince, but I just didn't see the connection. I just, same way with Hans Zimmer and Superman. I don't think Prince goes well with a dark, brooding Batman. That's me. Just doesn't quite work. No, you've yeah. got to find something that complements. You know, yeah. when you're talking soundtrack, in this case, you're talking about music songs. Justin Timberlake, that upbeat music for trolls. That's an awesome song. It works. It fits the soundtrack. Exactly. Yeah, having, having a song like that go along with it. Yeah. Um, Will Smith in the 90s would oh, often yeah. do a song attached to his movies. Some of the movies were not so good. Some of the songs were okay then as well but but they were they were entertaining i mean men in black that that song goes i mean it goes right along with it wild wild west it's an entertaining song even if the movie wasn't very good but you got that you get that that sometimes comes along with it too where hey maybe somebody in the movie likes to produce their own music so will smith is in the guinness book of world records as the most successful entertainer without it being specific as to what genre ever. At one point, he had the number one show on TV with Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He had the number one movie. I think it was Men in Black at the time. And he had the number one song at the same time, which was Men in Black. And this it was remarkable. It was remarkable. And I, if he could put out a book at the same time, he would have come up with an unbeatable feat. I mean, I'm sure. He's going to go down at all times. So like his music or not like his music, it's, it is what it is. Music in the movies has, has changed in another way in terms of score. Because I, I think more and more it's get scores are getting really innovative for for being able to, to tell story through sound more than just having an orchestra. I talked about how Dunkirk did that with the use of the clock. One soundtrack, uh, one score, I should say, that I really enjoy was the Oscar-winning score for The Social Network in 2010. Extremely Trent, minimalistic. Yeah, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did a really unique score that they did there. Use of piano, use of really um, dark, brooding sound to go with a bit of a dark story. And, yeah. and and yet at the same time, they used almost video game-like sound to go along with it as well at, at different points in the movie. Um, there's there's uh, this one piece when they're, they're writing the code when they first create Facebook. The piece that they have to go along with it, it's just such the, such a fast-paced kind of, uh, kind of musical piece that they do. And... That's what I love is how music is getting more and more innovative and creative that way. And not only is music getting innovative and creative to score movies, but they're also going back to the past to to call upon cr- coming up with clever sound for the, for the present. Look at La La Land and the music they did there. That score won, won Best Original oh, Score. Yeah. Ennio Morricone wins Best Original Score for The Hateful Eight back in 2015, going back to a classic Western trope with with a very new type of sound to it. You can even get well, the maybe the ultimate mixing melting pot for Deadpool, and I know you haven't seen the movie yet. Deadpool incorporated parts of Michael Jackson, beat it 
into the orchestral score. Into which, the score. Into the score. It's 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 unusual the way it was done, but it worked. Do 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 do. That's from Michael Jackson, and it worked its way into the score for Deadpool. I'm assuming it'll re- uh, rise again in Deadpool too. But it was uh, you wouldn't expect it. But it, while it's very pop culture heavy and humor heavy, it was nostalgia too, because you've got a, a lot of different ways. Right. So S- scores have found a way to become. To become clever, they they found a way to. Oh yeah, directors, composers, they have found a way to. The director composer blend is so important to putting together a good score because it needs to complement it. I talked about going to see a quiet place. There's not, there is music in there, and yet it has to pick its moment because it's a movie that's all about lack of sound. Um, but they find a way to do it and to to create that tone because once again, it's all about setting that tone, and score has gotten so. So clever and unique in the way that it it complements the movie these days. It's not just about you know having a rousing piece or or having something really powerful. It's about how does this complement the movie? And those who create the scores have found more and more innovative ways to do it that go beyond conventional music. And I I love the way that they do that these days. It's interesting. There have been instances where they've done a full scoring piece for a particular movie and then for whatever reason decided this isn't working for the movie and they'll scrap it and they'll come up with a whole new piece from a whole new somebody else um, and they'll put that in. You know, that has happened. Or they'll have a, a variation of a theme. I like it, but let's let's not use it. And there's been some examples where they've made a piece of music for a particular movie that for whatever reason, maybe they rewrote it since the score was written and it wasn't used, but they really liked it. Most, most famous example of this... Uh, the ending of Aliens, they'd come up with one version, and they came up with a score for it, and they liked it. They decided to change it, so the music had to change, too. They ended up reusing something from earlier in the movie. But the piece that they had written originally was really good, so they put it at the end of a different movie by a different composer. Die Hard was done by Michael Kamen, and at the end of the movie, where you're the terrorist that you think is gone comes up, and the, the cop that was the good guy on the radio shoots him down— that's James Horner, that he'd composed that part from the end of Aliens. 20th Century Fox did both movies. So, you know, we've got this score. We really like it. Let's stick it at the end of Wow. Honest to goodness. The whole movie score is one thing, and then that last shot, it's a whole other thing. And that's not a mistake. I just, I, I love that scores have become more than just this background piece or this, you know, that it's this, a character that it needs a lot to be big. It is a character. And it, like characters, Scores are taking on more unique elements more and more over time as movies come along. And they are they are well worth listening for when you go in for a movie because what are you looking for? You're looking for a tone to be created. They play such an important role in having that tone be created. And yes, sometimes it's about finding that centerpiece sound that you are going to take with you forever like the theme for Jurassic Park or the Avengers theme or the theme for Superman. But sometimes it's about having it's about having that music that maybe it doesn't leave a certain piece in your mind, but it makes you go, that fed the, the story and it fed the movie extremely well. Even if I can't remember how in particular it sounded, it fed the movie really well for creating the kind of emotions that the movie was trying to convey. They say a picture speaks a thousand words. Music can almost do the same thing and almost on a subconscious level. Just one note, if it's done in a particular way on a particular instrument held in the hands of a master, can make you feel what they want you to feel for the movie. You want to feel dread because there might be somebody outside the door trying to break in with an axe that hasn't swung the axe yet. They can do that and start putting you on edge. And you're not even really aware why you're on edge, but the music might have something to do with that or make you feel uplifted at a kid's birthday party scene or a family reunion scene and everything in between. If it's done right, boy, it's gasoline on that fire. Listen for it next time. It's it's amazing what it can do. You know, there's you can go to YouTube and you can find examples where you'll see famous movie scenes that have famous scores to go with them. And you can watch the scene without the music. And then you can watch that very same scene with the music and you see if you feel differently about what you're seeing. It just... It, it just makes it work. Without it, it doesn't work. With it, night and day. Good spot to leave with, I would say, especially 
for those who might want to go off and try that out now. Do you think yeah. Rick slash Nick may join us next time since, you know, we went that field trip to the zoo and they threw a frog and you throw it and now they have to clean out the monkey cages. Do you think they'll ever show up to do this show? Well, one of them did for at least a little bit. For 15 seconds. That was seconds. a brief cameo, yeah. And all he did was complain that he doesn't get to do his own show. I don't know, Dave. It's, it's their own fault. I don't think they have any reason to complain. So... I'm ready for some breakfast, though. I, I think you should. You. Yes. My, my coffee's doing good. I'm getting low. We're looking forward to the movies to come here in the next couple of weeks. We are getting into that summer time of year for the movies. It's starting sooner and sooner, like oh. Dave said earlier. So. By the time we do the next one, Avengers will already be out. That's right. And late April, it's technically a summer movie. It's just starting earlier and earlier. Weird. We're going to talk more about it next time around. But until then, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.